Welcome to Strange Phenomena, the music of Kate Bush. I am Cecily Link, and this week we're going to be talking about a song that Kate Bush did not write, but she sang on it. We're going to be talking this week about the title track from Big Country's 1986 album, The Seer, on which our lovely Kate Bush sang on the title track. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Strange Phenomena, the music of Kate Bush. Well, guys, you're going to listen to just me this week. I was unable to find a fan for this song. So, hey, you know what? We're going to come up here. You guys are going to listen to me pride a lot. Woohoo! Just me. So this week, I'm going to be talking about a song that, oh, my God, I really, really like. Absolutely love this one. When I look at Kate Bush collaborations, I have to say this one is in my top three. I don't know if it's exactly my absolute favorite because I do love the songs that she did with Peter Gabriel. But this one is just, it is so much fun for me to just blast the song and just like sing along with her and all that stuff. I just love doing that. So I'm super excited this week to talk about a collaboration because this is the second to last episode for the Hounds of Love season. <laughs> and now we're going to get into the sensual world, which I am excited about We're getting into that. But I'm just like, oh, my gosh. This has been quite a season. Lots of songs. I th- this has now been the second longest season that I've done of this show. The longest one so far has been the Never Forever season. Because, oh, my God, so many B-sides. Oh, my gosh, so many B-sides, so many collaborations. And there were, have been so many B-sides on this season and Honestly, really only three collaborations this season. We had Do Bears last week. We've got this week, we're talking about The Seer. And we're going to end the season next week with Don't Give Up. So this week, we're talking about a song that Kate Bush did not write, but she did lend her beautiful vocals to it. So we're going to be talking about a song called The Seer. And the folks who she's singing with are the Scottish group Big Country. Big Country is a group that I had always heard of, but I'd only ever heard one song from them. So back in high school, back in the dark ages of the early 2000s, even though it's hard to believe it's already been 20 years. Ah! Anyway, so back in the early 2000s, I started getting really, really into 80s music. I didn't really like the stuff that was super popular then. I was you know, being a little hipster before I knew what a hipster was. I would spend a lot of time at Sam Goody and FYE and a lot of these places browsing the compilation section and I would just pick up 80s compilations um, because I wanted to kind of have make my own mixes and things like that and on one of those compilations I got the song in a big country and for a long time that was the only song I knew of big country I knew they were a band I knew they had had other songs that were popular but in a big country was the only song I knew of them and it makes sense that that was the only one I'd ever heard of from them 
because it was their only U.S. top 40 hit. Now, if you're listening from abroad, you're probably like, yeah, wait a minute. They had more hits. Well, yes, they did. Because sometimes you only have one big hit here in the U.S. and that's all anybody really remembers you for. But you go abroad and everybody's like, oh, yeah, they did XXX and all these other songs. And they did. They had a lot more hits over in the U.K. and Europe than they did in the United States. Although their albums did chart here in the U.S., as we'll see with, say, The Seer. So Big Country... They are a Scottish rock band that were formed in 1981. They are still going. They have been uh, reunited for about 10 years now at this point. They were active from 1981 to 2000. Then they reunited in 2007. And since 2010, they've been together and they still tour. I see a lot of live clips of them performing around the UK and Europe. So they're still around. The height of the band's popularity was in the early to mid-1980s, although it retained a cult following for many years after. The band's music incorporated Scottish folk and martial music styles, and the band engineered their guitar-driven sound to evoke the sound of bagpipes, fiddles, and other traditional folk instruments. Big Country, when they started, comprised of Stuart Adamson, formerly of the band Skids, on vocals, guitar, and keyboards, Bruce Watson, guitar, mandolin, sitar vocals, Tony Butler, bass guitar vocals, and Mark Brzezinski, drums, percussion, and vocals. Before the recruitment of Butler and Brzezinski, an early incarnation of Big Country was a five-piece band featuring Peter Wishart, leader of Runrig and now a Scottish National Party MP, on keyboards, his brother Alan on bass, and Clive Parker, drummer from Spiz Energy Atletico Spiz 80. Parker had approached Adamson to join his new band after the demise of Skids. Big Country's first single was Harvest Home, recorded and released in 1982. It was a modest success, though it did not reach the UK singles charts. Their next single was 1983's Fields of Fire, 400 Miles, which reached the UK's top 10. It was rapidly followed by the album The Crossing. Also, I have, as of now, I have heard more of their music, and... Um, back in college, I used to listen to Flashback Alternatives a lot, flashbackalternatives.com. I've mentioned them quite a bit on the show because that's how I got more into the underground stuff in the 80s. And that is another good song. Oh, I, I, I've heard that one song. That song too. Oh, my gosh. They play that one. The album, talking about The Crossing, was a hit in the United States, reaching the top 20 in the Billboard 200, powered by In a Big Country, their only U.S. top 40 hit single. The song featured heavily engineered guitar playing, strongly reminiscent of bagpipes. And I now have that song running through my head now. Adamson and fellow guitarist Watson achieved this through the use of the MXR Pitch Transposer 129 guitar effect. Also contributing to the band's unique sound was their use of the Ebo, a device which allowed a guitar to sound more like strings or synthesizer.
The Crossing sold over a million copies in the UK and obtained gold record status, sales of over 500,000 in the United States. The band performed at the at the Grammy Awards and on Saturday Night Live. Their second album, Steel Town, was a hit as soon as it was released, entering the UK album charts at number one. The album featured three top 30 singles in the UK and received considerable critical acclaim on both sides of the Atlantic. Throughout 1984 and 85, the band toured the UK, Europe, and to a lesser extent the United States, both as headliners and in support of such bigger name artists as Queen and Roger Daltrey. And then in 1986, where we get here and starting to get into where Kate comes in, 1986's The Seer, the band's third album, was another success in the UK, peaking at number two. It produced three further top 30 singles, including the Irish number one hit Look Away, which would also prove to be the band's biggest hit in the UK, peaking at number seven. Kate Bush ah, provided backing vocals on the album's title track, and the album received good reviews from the music press. In the U.S., the Sears sold a little bit better than Steel Town, reaching number 59 on the Billboard charts. And that's where we come in. Obviously, there's things that happened afterwards with the band, but we're just talking about up here, 1986. So the album, The Seer, was released on June 23, 1986. And so it's less than a year after Hounds of Love has been out. I mean, by this point, Hounds of Love has been out for about nine months. And our lovely Kate was asked specifically to sing on this song. And here is what they have said about this song. What they have said here, and by they, I mean the some of the folks from Big Country. According to Stuart Adamson, so this was the lead singer and the one that she sang with. The central character of the song, The Seer, is a woman. So I thought it would be good to get a woman's vocal point of view. I have a lot of Kate Bush albums and I like her voice. Hey, me too. She varies it so much. Oh, yes, she does. There's a lot of variety and texture in the way she sings. And she's always coming up with something different. She's a perfectionist. She won't give up until she's absolutely satisfied with what she's done. She has a lot of dedication. Indeed, she does. And that's part of why I love her. Oh, my gosh. In another interview with the band at the time of the album's release, they added, quote, We'd done the song, and one of our mates, a guy called Davy Duncan, who used to play and sing in a band called the Shaking Pyramids, put down a barad, which is a sort of ethnic Scottish-Irish type handheld drum, and it gave it a sort of folky feel, along with the mandolins and the zitars. We thought, this song needs girl vocals on it. And Stuart immediately thought, why don't we get Kate Bush? Because, hey, why not? I mean, come on. We said there was only one way to do it, and that's phone her management. They said that Kate would do it, but she'd like to hear a cassette of the song first. So we sent a cassette there, and she liked the song, and she worked out her parts for the song, orchestrating them really well. Then she came to the studio and did them. It took her about 12 hours to do, and it was just great. It was fantastic. I think the woman is just a complete genius. Yes, she is. She was very shy. I think we were quite awestruck as well when she walked in. Tony was like, oh, hello, Kate. Would you like a cup of coffee? Would you like a glass of orange juice? Running about saying things like that. I think we were quite shy. She was quite shy as well. But she was good fun. She's got a good sense of humor as well. She's got a very comic strip type of sense of humor, which we immediately identified with. And after that, it was a great time. 
Also, it's worth noting that when this album was released, Melody Maker specifically pointed out, quote, Kate Bush's athletic warbling. And what about Kate Bush's on the album as well? Yeah, well, uh, that was uh, that was a big one for me, definitely, because I've been a big fan of hers for uh, for many years. And uh, because the, the song, The Seer, that, that, that she sings on is actually, has a woman as the, as the central character, we thought it'd be good to have a woman sing quite a bit of the vocals on it. And I, I phoned her up and asked her if she would do it and sent her a tape and she phoned back and said she loved it and had worked out an arrangement for stuff and stuff. And came into the studio and sung for 14 hours straight, just like that, and it mm. was amazing. Let, let me ask you one thing real quick about Kate Bush. Was it amazing watching her perform? I mean, did she, uh, did she uh, impress you? Oh, man, it was unbelievable. Like I said, we were upstairs and you could kind of look down a little bit. So we weren't, she wasn't in front of us when she did it. Mm. But... You know, we listened to it through the monitors, and it's not a backing vocal, it's a featured piece, and she had all these overdubs. I mean, I don't know how many overdubs she had on it, maybe about eight or something like that. Wow. And she just made this whole section that was like, you know, this person's taking all this amount of care and being creative about it. She just not came down and did a couple of doo-wops and woe-oes, you know, she really went to town with it. Uh, absolute genius. That was that was a, a highlight, definitely. Given Kate Bush's involvement in that song, it's kind of surprising you didn't use it as a single. Too long. The record company thought it was too long. Ah. And it, it is too long. And we there was talk about us trying to find some edit points to bring it down in time to be a single. But it's just the way the song built, and especially having Kate's vocals, it would have. Uh, it wouldn't have made sense to edit it. You would have cut through the vocals. And I was talking about it being a single, especially being the title track, but it was just too long and it was impossible to edit. You could probably do it nowadays with the old computer technology, but back then, you know, mucking about slicing tape razor blades and stuff, you know? Yeah. And you'd already cut one verse out of that song, if I remember correctly, because you added it back when you played it live. It was like, who there is more there is more that she said much better left alone but who are we to question her who walks among the stones or yeah that was actually cut out of the album version so and was played live yes Possibly again due to the technicals, it was on vinyl again, or it was out on CD. Right. Um, possibly cut out. Was it cut out on the CD version as well, that there? It was. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yep. Because I, I remember those lyrics were in the lyric sheet, but they were never they were never on the song, and I, I used to wonder about that. And then when I saw you do it live, you used to do that verse. Right. So, I see. Just an interesting little tidbit there. For a little bit of context about okay what is a seer so a seer we're gonna get to talk about some magical stuff today because a seer is someone who practices divination a word that comes from the latin divine to foresee to foretell to predict to prophecy related to divinus or divine the attempt to gain insight into a question or situation by way of an occultic standardized process or ritual 
Used in various forms throughout history, diviners ascertain their interpretations of how Aquarians should proceed by reading signs, events, or omens, or through alleged contact with a supernatural agency. Divination can be seen as a systematic method with which to organize what appear to be disjointed, random facets of existence, such that they provide insight into a problem at hand. If a distinction is to be made between divination and fortune-telling, divination has a more formal or ritualistic element and often contains a more social character, usually in a religious context as seen in traditional African medicine. Fortune-telling, on the other hand, is a more everyday practice for personal purposes. Particular divination methods vary by culture and religion. And perhaps one of the most prominent civilizations who used seers and other divination practices were the ancient Greeks. There was the, what they call the oracle. So we'll get into like, okay, what is an oracle in a moment? The oracle of Amon at the Siwa Oasis was made famous when Alexander the Great visited it after conquering Egypt from Persia in 332 BC. Deuteronomy, ooh, getting into the Bible here, talking Bible stuff. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 10 through 12, or Leviticus chapter 19 at verse 26 can be interpreted as categorically forbidding divination. However, some would claim that divination is indeed practiced in the Bible, such as in Exodus 28, when the Urim and Thummim are mentioned. Some would also say that Gideon practiced divination, though when he uses a piece of fleece or wool in Judges chapter 6, 36 through 40, he is not attempting to predict the outcome of an important battle. Rather, he is communicating with God. Communicating with God through prayer may in some cases be considered divination. Both are open, typically two-way conversations with God. In addition, the method of casting lots used in Joshua chapter 14, verse 1 through 5, and Joshua chapter 18, verses 1 through 10, to divide the conquered lands of Canaan between the 12 tribes is not seen by some as divination, but as done at the behest of God. Numbers chapter 26, verse 55. Now, an oracle and a seer. Okay, well, what is this? Both oracles and seers in ancient Greece practiced divination. Oracles were the conduits for the gods on earth. Their prophecies were understood to be the will of the gods verbatim. Because of the high demand for oracle consultations and the oracle's limited work schedule, they were not the main source of divination for the ancient Greeks. That role fell to the seers. Seers. So unlike the, so the oracles, they were seen as people who were in direct contact with God. But seers were not in direct contact with the gods. Instead, they were interpreters of signs provided by the gods. Seers used many methods to, ex, to explicate the will of the gods, including extipisi, birth signs, etc., they were more numerous than the oracles and did not keep a limited schedule. Thus, they were highly valued by all Greeks, not just those with the capacity to travel to Delphi or other such distant sites. The disadvantage to seers with that was that only direct yes or no questions could be answered. The oracles can answer more generalized questions, but seers often had to perform several sacrifices in order to get the most consistent answer. For example, if a general wanted to know if the omens were proper for him to advance on the enemy, he would ask his seer both that question and if it were better for him to remain on the defensive. If the seer gave consistent answers, the advice was considered valid. At battle, generals would frequently ask seers at both the campground and at the battlefield. 
some process called the Hiera that was the at the campground and at the battlefield called Sphagia. The Hiera entailed at the seer slaughtering a sheep and examining its liver for answers regarding a more generic question. The Sphagia involved killing a young female goat by slitting its throat and noting the animal's last movements and blood flow. The battlefield sacrifice only occurred when two armies prepared for battle against each other. Neither force would advance until the seer revealed appropriate omens. Because the seers had such power over influential individuals in ancient Greece, many were skeptical of the accuracy and honesty of the seers. The degree to which seers were honest depends entirely on the individual seers. Despite the doubt surrounding individual seers the craft as a whole was well regarded and trusted by the greeks and also this continued into the middle ages that there was a divination method of casting lots which was used by the remaining 11 disciples of jesus in acts chapter 1 verse 23 through 26 to select a replacement from judas iscariot therefore divination was arguably an accepted practice in the early church however divination became viewed as a pagan practice by christian emperors during ancient Rome. And also it's worth noting, not just in Europe, that uh, cultures had these practices of divination and trying to predict the future, but also in Mesoamerica. Divination was a central component of ancient Mesoamerican religious life. Many Aztec gods, including central creator gods, were described as diviners and were closely associated with sorcery. Every civilization that developed in pre-Columbian Mexico, from the Olmecs to the Aztecs, practiced divination in daily life, both public and private. Scrying through the use of reflective water surfaces, mirrors, or the casting of lots were among the most widespread forms of divinatory practice. Visions derived from hallucinogens were another important form of divination and are still widely used among contemporary diviners of Mexico. Among the more common hallucinogenic plants used in divination are morning glory, jimson weed, and peyote. And I can also tell you in um, South America that from experiences of one of my friends, um, ayahuasca, that's another one that's used. So all of us talk about seers here. So we know what a seer is. And now in the context of the song, there was a particular legendary figure who inspired the lyrics of the song called the Brahan Seer. He was a legendary predictor of the future who lived in the 17th century and is regarded by some actually to be the creation of the folklorist Alexander Mackenzie, who lived 1838 to 1898, whose accounts occur well after some of the events the seer is claimed to have predicted. Others have questioned whether the seer existed at all. And this particular individual, he had a reputation for a supposed gift of second sight. Legend has it 
than when he was a teenager. He was outside taking a nap after cutting peat, and when he woke up, he found a small stone in, on his chest. When he looked through a tiny hole in the center of the stone, he had a vision of the farmer's wife bringing him a poisoned meal. So when the meal arrived, he fed it to a dog who promptly died. This confirmed to him that he had the gift of second sight. He became well known for his prophecies, and people traveled all over the Scottish Highlands to visit him. Like many prophets, he may have made shrewd guesses about future developments, such as canals bringing ships ashore or railroads enabling, quote, horseless carriages. But also, he predicted events that no one could have possibly known about beforehand. For example, he predicted that a lock would fill a nearby village, even though that event was 300 years away. He also predicted that a certain moor, quote, shall ere many generations have passed away, be stained with the best blood of the highlands, unquote. The moor he was referring to became known for the bloody battle of Culloden, the site of a battle between Jacob Jacobites, a movement which supported the restoration of the House of Stuart on the British throne, and a government force under William Augustus, Duke of Cumberland, on Drumossi Moor near Inverness in the Scottish Highlands, and is also the last pitched battle on British soil. Having become famous as a diviner and a wit, he was invited to Seaforth Territory in the east to work as a laborer at Brahan Castle near Dingwall in what is now the county of Easter Ross, where he met his downfall. This move led to an unfortunate, unforeseen sequence of events on the Sears part, leading to his barbaric murder at Channonry Point, when he was allegedly burnt in a spiked tar barrel at the command of the Earl's wife. The simple prediction that led to his downfall, that the absent Earl of Seaforth was having sexual adventures with one or more women in Paris, seems likely, but of course was highly outrageous to Lady Seaforth as it cast her husband in a scandalous light and heaped embarrassment on her. There is no historical evidence that a prophet known as Kenneth Mackenzie existed. For example, it is alleged that Mackenzie was born on the Isle of Lewis during the early 1600s, but no historical documentation or records demonstrate this. So all of that aside with like the context of the song and what, what other people have said about it, what do I think about that song? Well, as I said at the top of the episode, this is one of my absolute favorite Kate Bush collaborations. I know she did not write it, but if I have to make a list of these other random tracks that Kate Bush sang on... This is up there. This is in my top three. And there are a lot of reasons why. One of them is I love how bombastic it is. It is just like, it is so bombastic in 80s. I also, I love how just powerful and moving it is. As in like, you just want to like get up and just dance. Oh my gosh. And also what I especially like is the melody. Because oh my gosh, that melody that will get stuck in my head. It feels like an old folk song, but of course it isn't because it's got big 80s drums. I mean, I love the bombastic 80s-ness of it. And I say that in the kindest way possible because, oh my gosh, I love the way the melody moves. I love how the song sounds. 
And I also especially love Kate's contribution on it. So it's worth mentioning that as you guys got to hear, um, this is actually a clip here from another podcast that I found. This is a clip from a podcast that is specifically about big country. And I can't remember how I found this, but I found this a couple months ago when I started doing research for this song. Oh, here it is. The Great Divide of Big Country podcast. They actually go into talking about the album and they mention quite a bit of Kate Bush singing on this song that actually the original version of this song was supposed to have Kate Bush's vocals be much more prominent in the mix, but because of record company, all sorts of bullshit kind of stuff, they made them, they went to different producers and they downplayed her vocals, which might explain why what I will say the first time I heard this song that I almost didn't know she was there except for the yeah, 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 oohs. I had to really, really listen for her. So this song was actually supposed to be more like a very like prominent male and female duet, kind of in the style of Don't Give Up. But the record company had different ideas. Okay, Robin Miller. I, I was reading uh, as well that what you just alluded to, which was that his original mixes, the, the record company didn't like them and, and, wanted to, and brought in Turbot to come in and remix them. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what those original mixes were like versus what the finished product was like. I can't remember now. Um, I did have a mix on cassette years ago, which is, again, long lost. Okay. And they were just really good balances, really, really good mixes. I kind of thought, you know, they were as good as um, The Crossing. Mm. Uh, certainly, I, I prefer the sound of it uh, on top of Steel Town. Um, but I, I guess Dave Bates, he's, he's, he's he was heady in earlier, so he's obviously very talented and he's got a commercial ear. And I just think he thought, well, this could be better for radio, you know? Right. And so that's why. And at that point, we were just kind of anything for a quiet life, let them do it. If we get a hit out of this, then we're all laughing kind of thing, you know? Just let them go ahead with it. Robin Miller was talking about the, uh, the the song "The Seer" with Kate Bush, and he said uh, he was very angry that the, at the way they remixed the Kate Bush's vocals. He said that they were originally very upfront in the mix, and apparently, yeah. apparently Bates' comment was that he thought it sounded too much like Charday. <laughs> so whatever that means, I'm not yeah, sure. He's only saying that because um, Robin had produced Charday's album before he did "The Seer." Ah, he, okay. That's why. But uh, for memory, no. I don't know the last time I listened to this year. I did listen to it not so long ago just to work out a couple of bits and bobs that we were going to do live just on Look Away. Mm. And the sound of that record is very dated. You can hear all the reverbs are too much on certain things. You can you can, you can say, well, that's a Yamaha SPX90 that's on that, or that's a Rev7, or that's an Eventide, or whatever, you know, different pieces of kit. And the way it's been mixed, it's just uh, plastic is the kind of only way I can describe it. I mean, it's a good mix. There's, I mean, um, Robert Turbot did a, did a job on it, but it's just a different way of thinking from Robin Miller's um, original mix. To me, it sounds dated. It sounds very 80s is the only way I can describe it. No, I, I know exactly what you mean. 
I, I think that especially holds true on the drums. As great as the drums are, there's yeah. kind of like an 80s sound to the drums. Yes, definitely. It sounds a bit like the bass drum's been recorded in one room and the snare drum's been recorded at a, set, a different time in a, a different room. Yeah. You know, you've got like reverb sounds on the snare. And, you know, it's got its moments over this year. It's definitely, it's definitely a big country sounding album, without a doubt. What I especially like about her singing on the song, it's not just that, oh, yeah, it's Kate singing on somebody's song, or just her singing in general. It's that her her vocals, like there, there is a particular, and I've noticed this when, when I was talking through all these Hounds of Love songs, that there's a particular timber, I think, and way she's using her voice in this period. I noticed that Kate's voice before this period, and I'm going to also kind of lump the dreaming a little bit into this too, a little bit of only because um, she was starting to use her voice on the dreaming a little bit more like how she's uh, was doing on Hounds of Love. Her voice before this period, we're talking her first out, al- her first two albums, a little bit of her third album was usually pretty smooth and it all sounded like it came from one area of her voice, except for when she would do like those sudden low dips on something like, wow, whoa, something like that. It feels like before this period, she was using a lot of what you could call her head voice. So her voice was produced very high up in the mask of your face, which when you speak with your face more scrunched up to make the sound resonate a little bit higher, this is what you end up sounding like. And I'm not trying to be like, hang hang on, but it's true. Like I'm literally scrunching my face up here. And when we speak, we usually speak kind of chesty and you can kind of, if you put your hand on your chest and you can feel like resonating there, that's how a lot of people talk. Like if you ever ask people to, a bunch of people to speak in unison about something, like everybody's going, oh, I gotta be all little. But if you, if you sing, like placing the sound a little bit higher in your face, and especially with the way that Kate was singing in her, if you watch her live performances, you can see that how she's making that sound resonate higher in her face and I will say for my day job I do a lot of talking and so what I'm doing is kind of talking a little bit more like this because otherwise if you speak a little bit more chesty then it gets really you can wear out your voice but in this era and I'm going to also put in the dreaming too with it you can hear her voice maturing into different registers like you get more of her like kind of belting like at the end of the big sky or on not this time or something like that also singing kind of low especially like you know to tell you where we'll be in under the ivy and also in the song when she's singing some of the verse harmonies with Stuart. and in this song when she's not singing the lower stuff when she does those yeah 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 ooze that is my favorite thing (laughs) in this song is those yeah 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 ooze because she starts off singing a kind of middle voice and you sort of were talking about like how she's using her voice in this period that she sings a kind of the middle voice and then she, those ooze if it sounds kind of like high and ethereal those that's her head that's a head voice so that's that higher part of your voice that when you're doing it right it should resonate out the top of your head um i had a voice teacher who used to say that the sound should feel like it's coming out of your forehead like you have a string that's pulling you upward and pulling the sound up toward the ceiling and that higher part of the human voice or your head voice has a different sound to it because your voice is resonating more in the top of your head rather than the middle of your face or if I'm talking chesty like this. And also like 
if you've ever heard somebody yodel, in fact, I would almost say that her vocals on this are kind of yodeling because she's flipping between two different registers and resonances of her voice. You know, that kind of here and then suddenly getting all up high. And most people, if whether you sing a lot or not, most people kind of have a vocal break that you'll, you'll have like these different parts of your voice. And most people have like that, that like when you change from your from your chest to your middle to your high voice, there's usually a vocal break somewhere, a usual vocal break somewhere in there. And every person is different because every set of vocal cords are different. And it yodeling, which is what I feel like Kate is doing on this song with the yeah, 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 ooze, plays with those breaks between registers where you have the, the middle voice and your ethereal high voice. And it, you know, like that there, that like if you can feel something kind of switching in your your uh, your throat when you do that, and that's your flipping between different registers. And that's what Kate is doing a lot of on this song and also in this time period. Like these vocals on this song are very much in a, I think, um, mother stands for comfort sort of vein. You know, that kind of the kind of thing. So all of this to say that I love her vocal performance on this song. I wish that the harmonies were more prominent. I wish I would die to hear the original version of this song when her voice was much more prominent in the mix. And I'm surprised that it wasn't, to be honest, because at this point in her career, she put out Hounds of Love that was a big hit. You would think that they go, oh, yeah, we're going to like play up the fact that Kate frickin' Bush is singing on the song. Let's like lift up her vocals. But they didn't because as you got to hear. And I mean, just all of this to say that I love her vocal performance on this song. I also love the song itself. It is insanely catchy. I like that it's got historical references in it with talking about and I do find it interesting um I forgot to put this in my notes. I just saw this, that uh, the inspiration for this song was a male seer, but the seer in the song is a woman. I just kind of found that interesting. Um, this also, I am totally not surprised that Kate was singing on a song like this because to me... The Hounds of Love era was all about her embracing even more of her roots because she was, she had built her home studio. She was around her family more and she was just, she was back at home where she had all those memories of playing as a kid and creating and just, just being wild and free. And so in this era of the Hounds of Love era, there's so much, so much of her. She was talking. She was talking in the press about recording at home and, and the advantages of recording at home and being around her family and people just popping in and out like, "Hey, you want some tea?" While you're, you know, working on and Dream of Sheep" and stuff like that. And it makes sense that Kate would be drawn to performing on a song like this that has such deeply Celtic roots. I mean, this even the whole album from Big Country, the Seer, the whole album was really good, and. All of those songs have these very folk Celtic sort of vibes to them. And especially on this one, like the, the melody of this song sounds like if you took the melody of this song 
out of the 80s production of it, you could totally play it on traditional instruments. Like it's got that sort of sound. And this was just that era of Kate Bush really embracing even more of that part of herself that like very deeply English and Irish roots. And I just, it totally makes sense why she would want to be on a song like this and why she would be drawn to it. And it's her vocal performance on this is, I mean, for what you can hear is absolutely amazing. And what I love about Kate and you know, you guys, if you've been following the show, you know, like, Oh yeah, she's going to do this again. What I love about this how she uses her voice and it's like we're going back to to what Stuart had said about her which was that she uses her voice in so many different ways and yeah she does on this song she's got like this she's singing the low and the harmonies and then she's got the yodeling kind of thing like she just goes for it and that's what I love about her voice she it's just so gymnastic and it's it's so distinctive like you 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 hear the yeah 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 and you're like yep that is her like when I first heard the song I wasn't even very first time I ever heard the song I could not really hear her until those yeah 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 I went oh there we go that's her that's her right there and it's just this this song and her, Kate Bush singing on the seer is just absolutely amazing I love it. This is one of my favorite collaborations. I just blast this in the car. This is one of those, like, if it is warm outside or something, I blast this song in the car with the windows open. It's just got this, like, it just takes you away. And it, in the historical context of the song is awesome as well. Because, hey, you know what? I got to read a little bit more about divination for it because I knew about the practice. But in terms of this, like, oh, wow, get to learn, get to learn a little bit more. Last thing I'm going to mention about this song is, okay, well, live performances. Well, unfortunately, our lovely Kate has never sung this song with them. She never sang it with them. Uh, The band has performed the song live, but they don't even have a tape of her vocals playing while they're playing live. And at least at the couple of performances that I found on YouTube of Big Country performing this song, they don't even have one of the other guys trying to imitate her vocals or anything. It's like you wouldn't have even known that Kate Bush sang on the song. They still play it well, and they have a different lead singer, by the way. And it's worth noting that I was hoping to get a hold of some of the guys from Big Country because even they they're still going, and they've had some lineup changes over the years, like a lot of long-running bands have. But it's worth noting that the lead singer, Stuart Adamson, committed suicide in 2001. He disappeared for a couple of days. People didn't know where he was. He had had alcohol problems and they found him dead. He had committed suicide. So he has since been replaced with the with a different lead singer, Simon Howell. And they still perform this song. It's in a slightly different key. I've noticed in the original because you know me, I'm a music nerd. I notice these things. But every time they do this song, at least of the one the performances that I've heard, you wouldn't have even known that Kate sang on them, sang on it. But at least they have a recorded version of the song. So we know that our wonderful Kate did sing on this song.
listening to me prowl for, I guess it's now going on about 40 minutes here, talking about the song The Seer and all that. And next week, you're going to get to hear me prattle on with somebody else in the room. So that'll be he get somebody else. So next week, it's going to be the last episode of the Hounds of Love season. We're going to get to talk about a top 10 hit. This time, this was this was another collaboration. But unlike this year, this was a top 10 hit released as a single, I should say, just in general. And that is her duet with Peter Gabriel from his So album talking about Don't Give Up. And for Don't Give Up, I'm going to get to have Andrew Link. We haven't had Andrew on the show in a while, resident Peter Gabriel fan. He's going to be on next week to talk about Don't Give Up. And then that's it. That'll be it for the Hounds of Love era songs. And as always, 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 I have to put this out there. I am always looking for people to talk about future songs. I'm planning out the sensual world season as we speak. I do have an album introduction episode in the can that, oh my God, I'm so excited about. I can't wait to release that one because that's going to be really cool. Did that back in November. And if there's another, there's a, if there's a song from the sensual world, Red Shoes, or even later Ariel and 50 Words for Snow that you would love to talk about for the show, here's where you can contact me. You can find me on Twitter at StrangeKateCast. You can find me on Facebook, facebook.com slash Kate Bush Podcast. You can find me on the web at kbcast.linkmedia.com. That's link with the knee. You can always email me kbcast at linkmedia.com. And there's also on the website kbcast.linkmedia.com. You can also leave a note on there. There's an email form. You can also call the hotline at any time and your message would might be played on a future episode and that is 757-349-6886 so 757-349-6886 is the hotline well i will see everybody next week for the final episode of the hounds of love season where we're going to get to talk about don't give up so don't give up we've got one more song to go we'll see everybody next week It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. Fantasypoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.